And one of the joys of my job is I get to travel. And earlier this year, a bunch of my friends and I, we did this little small thing called Project 54. Did anybody, did anybody in this room participate in Project 54? Okay, so if you didn't, here's what it was. We had this crazy idea where we said, let's get all of our community, let's get all our friends, and let's try, let's attempt to go to all 54 countries in Africa. This was a, by all accounts, a crazy idea. And my uh, team of people, along with a couple other teams, ended up in a, in a wonderful, wonderful nation called Egypt. Raise your hand if you were with me in Egypt. That's right, I see a few of you guys. All right, so we ended up in Egypt, and we go to Cairo. And in Cairo, some, some Cairo, we're in Cairo, and we're doing this prayer meeting, and after the prayer meeting, the next day, a few of us decide to go out and explore the city. And we're driving around Cairo, and we heard about this place called, they called it different names, but one of the names they called it was like the Cave Church. And I first heard about the Cave Church, I was like, what is, what is the Cave Church? That sounds a little bit scary, but also a little bit cool. And they're like, well, there's this giant cave here in Cairo, and a bunch of Coptic Christians have actually been using this cave as a place of worship for like centuries. And we were like, that is too cool. We have to go check out this cave. You know, I'm thinking like, is it like a small cave? Is it a big cave? Okay, we go to the cave church. Turns out the cave church is like the amphitheater church, would probably be a better name. It's as big as this room. It's, it's, it's probably three times the, the, the length and about as wide, a bit bigger than this room. And it's this giant amphitheater that's carved in the side of this huge mountain. And we're there, and, and I hear about this story. We're like, what, what's the deal? Why is there a church carved into the side of this mountain? And, and I studied this later, a little bit later on. And there's this story. It's, it's a legend, people say. It's recorded by uh, historians that are Christians, historians that are Muslim. And, and the story goes that back in the 10th century, stay with me, back in the 10th century, like the 900s, there was a ruler over Egypt who was having a discussion with the leader of the Coptic church in Egypt. And in this discussion, this Muslim ruler is having a discussion with the leader of the Christian church. The Muslim ruler begins to ask this Christian leader about this strange verse in the Bible that Jesus said. And he goes, I, I know that there's this verse in your scripture that talks about a mountain and how you can make mountains move if you have the faith of a mustard seed. A Muslim ruler asking the Christian leader of the Coptic church at the time, I, I hear you have this verse. And, you know, yeah, that, that is in the Bible. Jesus did say that. And the Muslim ruler says, okay, prove it. They're like, what do you mean? He goes, prove that your Bible is true by making a mountain move. And if you don't make the mountain move, I'll make it a little spicy. If you don't make a mountain move, all of the Christians in Egypt are going to be either exiled or they're going to convert to Islam or they're going to die. Those are your three options. So the leader of the Christian Coptic church goes away. He tells all his buddies, he's like, hey guys, we got a problem. Somebody's a literalist, okay? We don't know what to do. So they pray and fast for three days. Again, this is according to the court of the history, according to the legend. They pray and fast for three days. And at the end of three days, 
uh, someone has a vision. In the vision, they say, uh, they, they see this man in the market, and he has one eye, and he's a leather worker, and they're like, we, and, and his name is Simon. So they get a word of knowledge. They're like, all right, there's going to be this guy at the market named Simon with one eye. He's a leather worker. Let's go find him. So they go to the market. Lo and behold, this man is there at the market. They say, come with us. They bring him back to the church, and they're like, hey, we have a problem. We need to make a mountain move. Can you help us? And this man's a believer, and he says, yes, I can help you. Now, this man had one eye because he had read the scripture, and he had read the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he had taken it literally. So they get this guy, and he says, all right, everybody, go to the mountain. We're going to come to this mountain. It's called Moktam. I'm not saying it right, but that's an approximate pronunciation. Moktam, mountain. Come with me. So everybody gets to the mountain, and he says, all right, we're going to pray. So they begin to pray. And as they begin to pray for a while, according to legend or history, depending on how you see this story, the mountain begins to shake. There's an earthquake, and the mountain lifts up off of the ground so high that you could see daylight under it. And it happens three times. The mountain lifts, you can see under it, falls down. Lifts, see under it, falls down. Lifts, see under it, falls down. And at this site, supposedly, again, historians will disagree with legend. With, at this site, the ruler of Egypt is amazed and says, your God is real, your book is true. And according to some people, he became a Christian. Now, I'm telling that story because I was thinking about it this week as I was studying the Sermon on the Mount, which if you've been with us for the last several weeks is the portion of scripture that we've been studying, right? We've been going through uh, different aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking about the Beatitudes at the beginning. We've been talking about, Scott did a great job leading us into the, further into the Sermon on the Mount last week. Raise your hand if you were there last week. Oh, so fun. Awesome, many of us. So we've been studying this portion of Scripture, and I've been thinking about this story. It, it bothers me. It really bothers me because I was at the church, and I'm in the cave, and it's really an amphitheater, and I'm looking up, and I'm like, this mountain moved? Like, Jesus said it, but it's probably a legend, but there maybe is a chance. And I'm, I'm reading this part of the Bible this week, Matthew 5, right, 6, 7, and I'm reading this part of the Bible, and, and can I be really honest with you guys? I've been reading this part of the Bible for years. Me and my friends, we used to, we used to read the Sermon on the Mount every Friday. We called it Sermon on the Mount Fridays. I'm serious. <laughs> S-O-S-S, uh, anyway, we used to call it Sermon on the Mount Fridays. We'd read through it. And I've read through this for years. And the thing that for me always is bothersome about the Sermon on the Mount, again, if, I'm being, if I can be honest with you guys, is that I don't know how to take it. I so badly look at this portion of scripture and I'm like, please be a metaphor. Please be a metaphor. Please be a metaphor. And then I, I read parts of it and I'm like, please be literal. Please be literal. Please be literal. And as I read through it, it's deeply challenging, right? No, like if you, if you have not found the Sermon on the Mount to be deeply challenging, you have not read this, okay? You have not read this. And I'm going to prove it to you. Raise your hand in this room. Raise your hand if you've ever been slapped in the face, full hand slapped in the face. Wow, there is a lot of you. There's a lot of trauma in this room. We're going to work through that later. We're going to do an altar call at the end. Okay, I have questions for many of you guys. I thought there was going to be like three people. Okay. 
I have, a, I have an embarrassing story of how I got slapped in the face. I didn't know if I wanted to tell the story, but I feel like I have to. I was on an outreach many, many, many years ago, okay, when I was a lot younger and a lot more stupid. And I was on this outreach, and, and we had young people on the outreach, as you do with, with outreaches. And we had this, this one girl on the team, and she was real sweet, real nice girl. Uh, but the whole outreach, uh, she would always make this joke. She was like 18. She was like, I've never slapped somebody in the face. I would love to slap someone in the face. And it became, you know how this goes. Like, just, she said it, and we'd all laugh. And then like a week later, she'd say it again. We were like, she's like, I want to slap somebody. Okay, that went on for months. And we get to the end of the outreach, and we're having a game night one night. Golly, we're having a game night one night, and we're all goofing around. And I'm young and, and dumb. And she says it. She makes the joke. She's like, oh, man, it'd be so fun to just, well, just, I don't know. I've never slapped someone in the face. And I was like, you can slap me in the face. Why not? You can slap me. I'm like trying to, I'm the team leader. You know, I'm trying to be like, oh, I'm tough. You know, you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, come on. I've never been slapped. Can't hurt that bad. So a whole, whole team is like freaking out. They're like, no way. We're going to slap Caleb. This is awesome. And I'm like, I think this is a good idea. I don't know. This is, this is fun, right? Like, I've seen in the movies, it can't be that bad. And so, so I, I stand, I stand up, I'll never forget this, I'll stand up, she stands on a chair. And she's like this, like hand right here, the whole team is gathered, they're like videoing it, they're like, yo, what's about to happen? She does this, and she brings her hand back. Okay, okay. So in America, where I'm from, we have this sport called baseball. Okay, and what I remember, the last thing that I remember before her hand flew at my face was that this sweet girl had been on scholarship to play baseball at university <laughs> as the catcher. So she pulls her arm back and I thought, uh-oh, catcher, scholarship. And she just slaps me. And I, I saw stars. Like, I went black. It blacked out for a second. I reeled backwards. I was like, what the heck just hit me? I was like, that was not like the movies. That was not like anything I've ever seen. That actually really hurt. I had to, like, sit down for, like, the next 15 minutes. I don't know. Again, you guys have stories, so some of you clearly know what this is like. I did not. Okay. So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. And then you're in your quiet time on Friday. <laughs> if anyone, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, for whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No way, dude. Not if they're on scholarship to play basket, uh, baseball. No way. Like, I read this, and I'm like, man, I want that part to be metaphorical, and I want the fun parts, the parts about the birds and God caring for the birds and the flowers, I want that part to be literal. You know what I mean? Don't be anxious for anything. I'm like, that I want. The slapping part, you can keep that, Lord. Like, take that. And one of the big questions that I've had over and over and over again is, how could you literally live like this? Has anybody thought that, or is it just me? Like, I read the Sermon on the Mount, I'm like... What kind of person can live this way and not be walking around with red cheeks all the time? Like, you're not going to have a cloak after you read Matthew 5. You're not going to have any money left after you read Matthew 5. Everybody is going to go around and use you after you read Matthew 5, 6, 7. 
Like, how in the world do you do this? I have a friend, his name's Max. He lives in the Middle East. He's a missionary there. And he always says this phrase, and I love it. He always says this. He says, does your life require a gospel explanation? Does your life require a gospel explanation? I so badly want to see the Sermon on the Mount as an attainable and realistic lifestyle. I so badly want to believe that it's not an untested, unattainable thing that, that Jesus gave us. But if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, deep down in my heart, the kind of questions that arise in my own life when I read this part of the Bible, are, it's almost too much. Like, I'm like, skip, pass. Like, let's go to Matthew 8. Yeah, I like that one. Jesus cleansed the leper. That's a good one. Let's go there instead. And in my wrestle over the years of reading through this passage, I've tried to find corresponding passages in the Bible that would relate to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and help me find my way through it. I'm like, there's got to be more that Jesus said. There's got to be something else in this book that he gave to me. I was with uh, our Bible school this last week, and one of the things that I overemphasized, yeah, DBS, where you at? Overemphasized again and again and again is this phrase. Help me finish it, guys. Where have I seen this before? Yes. You all get A's. Where have I seen this before? This is one of the greatest questions as you go in your quiet time, as you read your word. This is one of the greatest questions you can ask because when you get to a passage of scripture, a portion of scripture that is difficult to understand, you can ask the question, where have I seen this before? And it's usually in the constellation of different passages that we find the meaning. So trying to discover the constellation of what the heck is the Sermon on the Mount about, I found myself many, many years ago reading Matthew 19. So if you have your Bibles tonight, I want you to open up to Matthew 19. And we're going to read a story about a man the Bible affectionately refers to as the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Okay, turn your Bibles, Matthew 19, 16 through 22. It's going to be up on the screen as well, but if you have it in your Bibles, it's always fun to, to read it in your own word. I would encourage you to do that. I'm going to read it from the ESV. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? the question this young man brings to Jesus after going through the litany of laws from the Old Testament. Jesus puts this question to him, have you followed the law? You want eternal life. Have you followed the law? And the man says, yeah, I've done this since I was a young person. I've done it all of my life. And Jesus says, all right. And in verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Some of your translations will say complete. If you would be complete, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, the reason I say this connects to the Sermon on the Mount is because it does. I've asked the question, how do you live the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle? What kind of person can live the way we've been talking about the last several weeks? And the answer to that is found in Matthew 19. Because in Matthew 19, Jesus is inviting a person, a flesh and blood person like you and like me. A real dude who lived in the first century AD who was walking around, breathing air, same air as Jesus. He's walking around. He just happens to be rich. And he comes to Jesus and he asks this question. What do I do? I've followed the law, but it just, it feels like something's off, you know? It feels like something's not complete in me. And just says, and, and, and Luke and Mark, it'll say this differently. It'll say that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He looks at him, he's like, bro, I love you. I love your heart, dude. I love the way you're approaching me. You wanna be perfect? I'm gonna give you an opportunity that not everybody gets. I got this little thing, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. I preach it every week. You wanna hear about it? And he's like, what's, what's it about? He goes, well, there's this unique invitation. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, then it's going to cost you. And here's what he says. He says, if you're going to be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor. You're going to have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Okay, this directly connects to the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is quoting backwards. He's quoting what he's already said in Matthew, right? In Matthew 5, he had already said, blessed are the poor in spirit for what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Luke is going to record it a little differently. Luke's just going to say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. So blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the poor. Jesus looks at the young man. He says, I want you to do the first beatitude, bro. I want you to become poor. You're rich. I want you to be poor, but I want you to be poor so you can enter into the kingdom. Matthew 5, verse 20 uh, sorry, 6 verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, okay? That's what Jesus is inviting him into. He says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, rich young ruler. Why? Because I've already told this to a lot of other people, but you have the chance to do it right now. You will get treasures in heaven instead of treasures on earth, which you have a lot of. I am trying to give you the deal of a lifetime and exchanging these treasures, best exchange rate ever. Really, really good exchange rate. Eternal treasure, earthly treasure. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This, this is the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. Do, do you see the connection here? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, bro, if you want to follow me, you can do all the things that I've laid out. You can do it all. You can have it all. But it's not gonna be what you thought it was. It's gonna look a little different. What does it say? It says that the rich young ruler, this young man in verse 22, when the young man heard this, when he heard Jesus' invitation, when he heard what he was calling him to, he might have even heard the Sermon on the Mount before. He, as soon as Jesus starts talking, he knows, uh-oh, he's asking me for everything. He's asking me to live a lifestyle I don't know if I can live. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want to analogize, meaning I want to make an analogy or a metaphor out of the Sermon on the Mount. I really do. 
And it just doesn't seem like Jesus gave this young man that opportunity. That young man wanted to keep this thing at arm's distance, and Jesus does not give him the out. He says, if you want to follow me, you're going to do it. It's not a metaphor, bro. Your riches that you're going to give up, it's not an analogy. The poor people that are going to benefit from your riches are real people. They're going to really benefit. But so are the treasures, too. That's what's crazy about this. I look at this, and I'm like, I mean, you know, Jesus doesn't really want me to do that, to do this. The tragedy is that the young man in Matthew 19, he walks away. He totally misses. The, I mean, can, you, can I just, can we be real for a second? Like he misses the greatest opportunity anybody was ever gonna give him in his life. Forget all the privilege he had, forget all the background, all the wealth, all the status, all the connections. He misses out. I mean, that should, this should pain you deeply to feel this. A man that Jesus had said, he looked at him and he loved him and yet he walks away from the greatest love he's ever known, and the greatest future he's ever participated in. I mean, Jesus says, you're gonna, you can follow me, bro. Jesus turned away people. You guys know that, right? Jesus turned away people. Not everybody got the follow me speech. This young man gets the follow me speech. That's wild. But he, he walks away. And it's a tragedy that he walked away. So continuing this verse in chapter 19, 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I know much has been made of this verse. Like, was there a, a gate that was called the, you know, the eye of the needle, and it was a camel. People like to make this a metaphor. I don't think Jesus is speaking in metaphors. I don't think the disciples, quite honestly, are smart enough for that at this stage. He's like literally the biggest mammal that's walking around this part of Judea cannot fit through a little tiny needle. That's his point. It's literally impossible. When the disciples, verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved. Like the disciples are shocked here. They're, they're astonished. And they go, they look at each other. They're like, James, bro, who can be saved? Who, who can be saved? And it's almost like you kind of you feel this sense. I feel this sense when I read this passage of scripture. It's almost like they're looking at each other astonished like we knew it. We knew that nobody could do this. We knew that no way anybody could live Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Like there's no way. This this is impossible. Jesus has set us up to fail. I mean, they don't say that, but it's almost like, and the astonishment, they're looking at each other. Because here's the thing, the rich young ruler should have been able to do everything. To, like he, he had every opportunity to follow God because he did everything right up until that point. And think about it. He, he, it, says, like, it says like he hasn't murdered, he hasn't committed adultery, he hasn't stolen, he's honored his mom and dad, I'm getting a little sweaty if I'm one of the disciples, right? You got Simon the Zealot. The Zealot movement was associated with groups of people that would go around and kill people. You're like, ooh, Simon, you're crossed off the list, bro. (laughs) James and John are looking at each other like, did we honor our dad when we left the fishing business? Like, I don't know, bro, did we do it? We kind of just like left it there, you know? Jesus said, leave it, so we left it. I don't know. Matthew, 
the tax collector, don't steal. He's like, ooh, I'm getting real sweaty. (laughs) They're astonished because they're like, if that guy can't do it, look at us. Like, if that guy can't do it, look at us. And more than, more than all the sin stuff, this guy's rich, okay? You got to understand, in this time frame, in this culture, if you're rich, it's associated with godliness. It's associated with, like, God's favor is on you, dude. I don't know. I'm in Africa. It just feels like maybe that's similar here. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe. It feels like if you're wealthy, if you got it going, it's God's blessed you. God's favor's on you. You worked hard for that. And they're looking at this guy, and they're like, if he can't do it, who in the world can do this? I read this Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. And so they look at Jesus. And Jesus, in verse 26, looks back at them. And he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible. He agrees with them. He's like, boys, gather up. You're right. And they're like, we knew it. It was a metaphor, right? That's not what he says. He says, with man, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's impossible, basically. He goes, but with God, with God, all things are possible. Okay, usually when we read this verse, there's another verse that kind of comes to mind. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, and so you kind of read this part. You're like, Jesus is talking to the boys. He's like, come on, dudes. With God, all things are possible. I don't know that he's saying that. I don't know that he's not saying that, but I don't know if that's his primary meaning. I think that Jesus is actually agreeing with the disciples here. I think their astonishment that he's seeing, he goes, yeah, you're right. With people, this is impossible. With God, it's possible. And I think, I almost imagine as he's doing it, he kind of just gives like a big wink. He's like, with God, all things are possible. Like, with God... Sermon on the Mount is possible. He's like pointing at himself. He's like, this, with God, it's possible. Like just, I want to just frame it that way. Right, because we're looking at the rich young ruler who's invited in, and it's clearly not possible for him. We're looking at the disciples. Can they follow this lifestyle? It seems pretty impossible for them. I'm like, how in the world are we supposed to do this? I love the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is one of my heroes. He's an absolute, incredible theologian, one of the brightest minds of his era. And he wrote a little book that was devastating to the German church called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, he talks about the Sermon on the Mount. I remember this was the first book. I read it when I was young. It was the first book that I, I ever read that I was like, I can't go another chapter until I dissect what I just read because it, it was just, it laid a hold of me. And in, and in uh, Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer lays out this idea. He goes, the worst question that you can, I'm paraphrasing here. He goes, the worst question that you can ask about the Sermon on the Mount is how do I fulfill the Sermon on the Mount? The worst question is that. Like, how do I live the Sermon on the Mount? That's a bad question. That's what Bonhoeffer says. He goes, instead, you should ask a different question. And what you need to do is you need to replace the word how with the word who. Everyone say who. Who. So you got to replace the how with the who. And what Bonhoeffer says is the best question to ask is who did the Sermon on the Mount? Who did it? Who 
lived it out? Who enacted it? Not how. We can take a lot of principles from how. How is, you know, you, you, you get a lot from how. But you get a different sort of answer when you ask who. You get flesh and blood. You get personality. You get things that are hard to bend into rules when you get a who. So that's what Bonhoeffer says. I'm looking at the, the rich young ruler, guys. I'm looking at the disciples, and I'm like, they definitely didn't figure out how to do this on their own. The only other option, the only other person that then we can go to here is Jesus. If I am trying to figure out how to live a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, the only other person, the only example that I can truthfully look at and in somehow attain to the way that I'm, I'm required, I'm asked of God to live is by asking who lived the Sermon on the Mount, who actually did it. And Jesus says with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. I know what you're thinking. Okay. You're like, Caleb, that's a cheat code and that's unfair. You're not allowed to use Jesus as the example for this. Why? Why? Because when we think about Jesus, we're like, you can't say that Jesus is the way to do this because, you know, he lived a unique life. He was the only begotten son of God. You're right. Caleb, he's, he's God. Like, it's not fair. It's not fair that you use him as example because he's perfect. Of course he did it. Of course he lived it out perfectly. He's more virtuous. He's more holy. He's more powerful. He's all these things that I am not. How can I possibly look at him as the example? I can't just tap. What am I supposed to do? Like, tap into my divine identity? First of all, yes. <laughs> Second of all, we don't have any other options. And the fact that Jesus lived the most holy life, the fact that he was the most powerful, and the fact that he actually did it is even more incredible than him not doing it. Here's what I mean. Imagine for a second, you're the only begotten son of the Father. You're the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most splendid being in the universe. Okay, don't imagine it for too long because that's not us, okay? But just imagine. Okay. Then you preach a sermon that you will have to fulfill. You will have to live by. You will have to enact through your life. And then we look at Jesus' life. We get a little bit later. After the Sermon on the Mount, after the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, we get a little bit later, and we get to the end of his life. And it's really at the end of his life that some of these things out of the, out of the Sermon on the Mount really come up, really bubble to the surface. Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, a fake court brought together by corrupt and apostate priests. And he's being questioned, are you the son of God? He's being questioned, are you the Messiah? And as they're doing it, it says in Matthew 26, they began to beat him and they began to slap him. Where have I seen this before? Where has Jesus talked about slapping? When they slap you on one cheek, turn to the other, them the other also. Matthew 26, they begin to slap him, they begin to beat him and they begin to taunt him in his divine identity. Go a little bit farther. A couple chapters later, Jesus is on the cross. As he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
pray for your enemies. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, bless those who curse you. Pray those, pray for those who persecute you. Here's my question. It would be difficult for me to do that, truthfully. It would be very difficult. But I'm not the most perfect, most powerful, and most splendid being in the universe. Like, if I get slapped, if I get beaten, if I get crucified, small chance I might actually deserve it. Zero percent chance Jesus actually deserves any of the things that's happening to him right now. And in that moment, he's the only person that gets that should be able to decide if he should be slapped, if he should be cursed, if he should be beaten, and if he should be crucified. And it's in the midst of the most righteous man that's ever lived, being absolutely shamed, that he says, I will live out this lifestyle. So you can tell me it doesn't count. It's kind of a cheat code if, if we use Jesus as the example. But I'm telling you, there's no better example because he was the only one who didn't deserve any of the punishment of the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. And yet, he chose it. And he lived by it. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply. So Jesus has just told the disciples, this is absolutely impossible for you guys, but it's possible for me. Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and we followed you. What then will we have? Verse 28, Jesus said to them, all of them, he said, truly I say to you, in the new world, or the resurrection, in the resurrection, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, this verse is a bit of a plot twist, because all of a sudden, this whole scene has been between this rich young ruler and Jesus, and then the scene kind of pivots, and now we're talking Jesus and the disciples, and they're talking about how things are impossible. One second they were talking about camels, okay? A second ago they were talking about camels. And Peter switches the conversation, and he, go, he looks at Jesus, he goes, what then will there be for us? And you're like, Peter, that's a little presumptuous, buddy. Like, what are you saying? You're, you're all of a sudden, you want to talk about what you're getting out of this deal? Like, that, that kind of makes no sense. Except Jesus isn't rebuking for that. He says, actually, Peter, I tell you, in the resurrection, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, and you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. So instead of rebuking Peter for asking the question, what are we going to get? Jesus goes straight to talking about thrones. Why is Jesus talking about thrones? Here's the only way this makes sense. Switching the conversation from camels and selling your possessions and giving to the poor, switching that conversation to a conversation about thrones doesn't make sense, hear me, unless present obedience results in future reward. You see, Jesus knows human nature. He knows that we humans, we're kind of a selfish bunch and we don't do things without rewards, right? Can we be real? Can we be honest? Like everything, I've been, I've been studying the Atomic Habits guy recently. It's like you, you gotta like set up your brain to like exercise. You gotta like trick yourself into enjoying it. You gotta trick yourself into eating vegetables. Maybe not some of you guys. Some of you guys are weird. You like vegetables and you like working out. 
mostly preaching to myself, okay? Like you, if you want to do things that are going to give you rewards later, you have to install habits now. And there has to be, the word is incentive. There has to be some kind of incentive. And Jesus created human beings. He made us that way. He knows that we only do things if there's incentive. So he's like, boys, guess what? Let me tell you about the thrones. And they're like, whoa. Sons of Zebedee are like really paying attention all of a sudden. They're like, we didn't like fishing anyway. We like thrones a lot better. In fact, can we sit on the one on your right and your left? He's like, not now, not now. We're going to talk about that later. And so he starts talking about thrones. Why? Why is he talking about thrones? Matthew 16, 27. Jesus is going to say this a few chapters uh, before. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay, everybody say repay, repay every man according to his deeds. So the disciples have already been clued into the fact that when Jesus sets up his kingdom, whenever that's going to be, they will get repaid. They're going to get incentivized. And that's why Peter's asking this question, because he's already told them. He's given them a sneak peek. Okay, let me ask you a question. So we're all very excited to be in living in South Africa in this glorious hour of history, because the Springboks have just won the World Cup of Rugby. This is awesome. I went out, a bunch of us went out after, after the game. We were like dancing in the streets. It was awesome. It was Hendrick. It was, it was so cool. I'd never experienced anything like it. You know, we don't, we don't have rugby really where I'm from. And it's just, it's a beautiful sport. And I'm loving it more and more every day. And it, it was just awesome, okay? So we're sitting in here. Just pretend for a second. We're all just minding our own business. And all of a sudden, I'm just going to use, I'm going to use Jan Hendrick as an example, okay? Sorry, bro. I got I to gotta call you out. It's a, it's a good thing. All of a sudden, Jan Hendrik walks in here with the Webb Ellis Cup, the championship cup of rugby, right? Is that it? Did I get it right? I had to look that one up. Okay. You walk in here with the Webb Ellis Cup. You got it over your shoulder, and you just walk in. You're like, I'm about to lead worship with the Webb Ellis Cup. Everybody would look at him like, where did you get that trophy? <laughs> What on earth did you do to procure that? And the only rational response, right, maybe you could have stole it, but the only rational response is he must have played in the Rugby World Cup. And he must have won the Rugby World Cup. That's right. If somebody walks in with the Webb Ellis, you know they just won the Rugby World Cup. If somebody walks in with a gold medal around their neck, they just won a prize. You know what they just did based off of the reward that they have received. One of the examples that Jesus gives us in looking at the Sermon on the Mount and in asking this question, how do we live this, how do we live this kind of life, is this. One way we would know if Jesus fulfilled the whole Sermon on the Mount, if he demonstrated for us perfectly, if he lived it out, one way that we could figure it out is we could look at his life and see if he was walking in the rewards that he himself promised, the incentives that he gives in the Beatitudes and on the Sermon on the Mount. Are you tracking with me? Are you tracking with me? So I know if Jan is played in the World Cup based off if he has the trophy, if he's got the reward. I know if Jesus perfectly, because I only gave a few examples earlier, I know if he perfectly lived it out, if I'm seeing the rewards that were promised in that way of living, and there are rewards, right? There's rewards. He, he offers rewards to the rich young ruler, but he doesn't take it. So my question for us is this. How do we figure out if Jesus walked into all of the rewards from the Sermon on the Mount? 
how would we know? The way we would know is we would look at his life. The way I would know if you're walking in the Sermon on the Mount is looking at your life. So what I want to do right now is I just want to go through, turn your Bibles, if you have them, turn your Bibles back to Matthew 6. I want to see if Jesus did it. Because he's the only person that I know that could have, and I'm praying that he can show me how to live the same way. Matthew 6. I'm sorry, Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 5. You're like, why is he going to Matthew 6? Matthew 5, verse 1. He saw the crowds. He went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You guys realize that for all of eternity, we are going to be, according to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be look Ephesians 1, we're going to be looking into the riches of God's grace extended to us for all eternity. You have to know that for our sake, he who was rich became poor. Philippians 2, he took on the form of what? The form of a servant, of a bond slave. The one who was all-powerful, dwelt in glory since eternity past, came down from heaven and became poor, being born in a manger. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guess what? Acts 2. Peter gets up and he says, this Christ whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and and Christ. He has made him the king of Israel, and he's made him the Lord of the universe. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'd say Jesus did that one pretty well. Let's move on. Matthew 5, the next beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you guys remember the story when Jesus is going into the garden with his disciples? Do you remember that night? Do you remember what he did when he, we walked a few stones throw away and he knelt down and began to pray? He does it over and over again. It says that in that moment, as he's sweating drops of blood, Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of grieving, deeply grieved, deeply sorrowful. The Son of God finds himself in a garden by himself. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Do you know what happened next in that story? As he's crying out to Yahweh, as he's crying out to the Lord, there's this funny little sentence that you get in Luke. It says an angel showed up and strengthened him, gave him what he needed to go the next moment. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 21, 5. This man, Jesus, rides in the last week of his life to Jerusalem on what? What did he ride in on? A donkey. He rides in on a donkey. What a terrible steed. What a terrible animal for a king to ride on. And yet he does. Blessed are the... Blessed are the meek. The same man who entered Jerusalem on a donkey, guys, is the same man who's gonna come back one day to the same city, but it's not gonna be on a donkey next time. It's gonna be on a big white horse, a lot cooler than a donkey. 
blessed are the meek. What is he going to do when he comes? He's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, and he's going to reign over the entire earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. It's like he's doing it. Let's keep going. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The same man at the Last Supper, he's drinking, he's eating with the disciples. Remember, he literally did this. He's eating, he's drinking with them, and he says, I'm not going to drink this again until when? Until I drink it at the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is my last drink, guys. I'll see you on the other side. Here's to me. And they drink. Blessed are, hold on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. A few hours later, where's he at? He's on the cross. And what does he say? One of the final words of Jesus, I thirst. I thirst. He's thirsting. Why? He's thirsting in the place of righteousness, being nailed to a tree. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. And he says, one day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to drink deep. We're going to drink deep together. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The man who never sinned, yet, as it says in Hebrews, yet he was made perfect by what he suffered. This is a weird verse. He never sinned, yet there was something about his life that was made to be more than it was through what he suffered, through the testing, through the purification of becoming a human Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That same man, guess where he's sitting right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Guess what? Jesus definitely gets to see God. You know why? Because he's sitting right next to him. This one is not hard. He's literally at the right hand of the Father right now, and he, anytime he wants, he's just like, I love you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The man who was killed for being the only righteous man ever to live is the inheritor of heaven and earth and over the kingdom of God. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He, he asked the question, this, this kind of the theoretical question that we often ask, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? R.C. Sproul says this. He says, that only happened once, and he volunteered. The only man who has ever lived a righteous life, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the same man who's going to rule over the kingdom of heaven forever and ever and ever. Jesus, literal, hear me, not metaphorical, not an analogy, Jesus' actual flesh and blood, obedience on the earth, unlocks real rewards and eternal consequences for himself, both in this life and in the next. You say, Caleb, that's Jesus. That's awesome for him. I love that for him. We bless him. We love him. That's why his name is great. That's why we sang that earlier. But that's really hard for me, and I'm pretty sure I can't do it like he did it. I'm not the son of God. Well, here's my question for you. Have you read the end of this book? Have you read the end of this book? Because at the end of this book, it seems like 
there are some people that walk in some pretty exceptional rewards. Turn to Revelation 21. Turn to Revelation 21, verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 7. Because, guys, this is it. If Jesus gets the blessings from the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, we know that because he lived a certain way, he died a certain way, and he gets rewarded a certain way. If he lived that way, then what are we to do? How can we not at least attempt? Revelation 21, 1 through 7. I'm going to read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Keep going. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. I'm believing that there's actually coming a day when God is coming back and when he's going to dwell with his people and when all of these things are coming true. Did you catch? Did you catch it? Did you catch the language? Look at it again. And look what's being promised in Revelation 21. And now think about the rewards from the Beatitudes. New bride, or a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, right, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. Blessed are what? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new. He says, verse 6, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be filled. He goes on. He who is overcome will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my what? Be my son or be my childhood. Child, sorry, not childhood. That'd be weird. That'd be a bad theology. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They will be called children of God. He who overcomes will inherit these things. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I will be his God he will be my son. Guys, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? Spelling it out for you. Jesus lived this lifestyle 
quite literally, even to the point of death. And the rewards that we see in his life are pretty real. I'm looking, I'm just reading Revelation 21 to you guys. I'm reading this, and, and I'm seeing the rewards. I'm seeing it happen. I'm seeing it promised the way that Jesus said it would be in the Sermon on the Mount. It looks different. It might be farther in the future, but guess what? It's in the book. The question I want to lay at your feet tonight, the question that I want to give to you is this. Do we actually believe this thing? I, I want to hold this in front of you, and I don't want you to be able to get around it. Do you actually believe this? Because if you want to make this a metaphor, then you can make the Sermon on the Mount a metaphor. Guess what? I got real tears. Guess what? I got real thirst. Guess what? I really want to inherit the earth with Jesus one day. I don't think that that's a metaphor. I think he's really coming back. I don't think he's allowing any tolerance for any evil. And guess what? When he comes back, he said it to his disciples, I will repay them according to their good deeds. Meaning, the decisions that you make in this life will have eternal repercussions in the next one. And I'm not talking about salvation. This is what Jesus says at the end of the whole Matthew 19 thing with the rich young ruler. This is what he says, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, I think that about covers most things, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit and will inherit an eternal life. You don't get eternal life without all the other stuff. And then the other gospels will say both in this life and in the next. I don't think Jesus is in the business of making false promises. I told you guys that story at the beginning of the, the weird mountain in Egypt. And, and the question is like, is it real? Is it not real? Is it literal? Is it not literal? That's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The question that you should ask is not about legends. It's about this book. And the question you should ask is this. How close can I get to it? How real can I make it? Because my hunch is that he'll make it as real as we want it. My hunch is that he'll make it as real as we want it. And the repercussions of that obedience will echo both in this life and in the next. Hear me. If we get a hold of this chapter, Revelation 21, and if we sink our teeth into this thing in an application of the great, of, of not the Great Commission, of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, what you're going to realize is this, that for billions and billions of years from now, your couple decades of obedience will determine to what extent you're experiencing things in God. Billions and billions of years from now, when your body is glorified, hallelujah, somebody read 1 Corinthians 15 later, when your body is glorified like him, when your body looks like a star or a moon or a sun, my body's going to look like a red giant, one of those red giant stars. I don't know. When we're shining like the stars in the sky forever, for billions and billions of years, looking like him, because we're going to be right next to him, looking at him, we are going to look at this chapter, and we're going to look at the decisions that we made in our few decades of life, and we're going to say it was totally worth it. Jesus, can I have another cup of water from the river of life? And he's going to say, absolutely, my son, absolutely. You took me at my word. You believed me in what I said. And now I say to you, blessed are those 
who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. Blessed are the poor in spirit. As much as you want to give him, he will take. And as much as you want to lay at his feet, he will use. As much as you want to take him at his word, he will honor his word. It's the one thing he can't not do. The Sermon on the Mount lifestyle is not a metaphorical manifesto on how to just live counterculture. It is a roadmap to rewards that we will experience forever and ever at the right hand of God. I have this dream. In my, in my dream, not like a sleeping dream, but just like a desire. I have this dream. One day, I don't know how it's all gonna work. Come to Bible class tomorrow, we're gonna talk about it. But one day Jesus is gonna come back. Book of Zechariah. One day Jesus is coming back, baby. I'm so pumped. I'm not scared. If you're scared about the person you love coming to see you, there's a dysfunction in your relationship, okay? I'm not scared. I'm excited. And he's gonna open the heavens and he's gonna stand on the Mount of Law. I don't know how it's all gonna work, but I have a hunch. And he's gonna come back and it says, he's gonna come back and all of heaven's coming with him, dude. Right? So I just imagine like I'm on the earth. Just go with me for a second. I'm on earth. The heavens are open. Jesus is coming. There's light streaming everywhere. And then angels start, you know, popping. You look over, there's like an angel from heaven that just came down. And I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, well, we've, we've come to make the kingdoms of the earth the kingdoms of our God. And I'm like, rock on, dude. That's what I want too. It's in the Bible. Good job. Way to do it. And this is my dream. In that moment, this angel or whatever that just came out of the sky, that just came from heaven, who's been in heaven, worshiping God his whole existence, its whole existence, looks at me. The angel looks at me and asks this question. He goes, where are you from? Because I just came from heaven, and I think you're from earth, but you look like the people in heaven. Where are you from, bro? You don't sound like you're from here. I believe that it is so possible to live this lifestyle because Jesus said we could and he invited people to do it that you could confuse an angel who's wondering where in the world you're from. Are you from heaven or are you from earth? Because you're, you seem like you're from earth, but you act like you're from heaven. You gaze upon the one that you want to be like. And I'm gazing upon this book. And I'm gazing upon this man. And I'm looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm like, it's got to be possible. i got to get as close as I can. I want to end with this story. I want to invite up the band. When I was 19, I was really zealous. And I was in a worship service one night. And I read Matthew 19. And I said, God, this is a really intense story. But I saw myself in the rich young ruler. I, I was like, I was young. I wasn't rich, but I was young, 50%. I felt like I had a lot of potential to be a rich young ruler, good candidate. And I was like, God, I want to I want to succeed where the rich young ruler failed. Such a such a performance mentality. I want to succeed where that guy failed. What a loser. And I was like, I think I can. And so I'm in this worship service, and I was like, okay. What did Jesus ask him to do? Okay, he asked him to give up all his possessions. So in my mind, I kind of started doing mental math. I was like, all right, well, if I, if I count my laptop and I look at the money in my bank account, I have approximately the value of a laptop. So I was like, Jesus, if you want everything I have, which is what you invited the rich young ruler to, I will give it to you. I will give it to you. 
And the Lord said, in a, in a way that was unique to my understanding of his voice at the time, Lord said, that's not what I want. And he said, I, what I do want is your most valuable possession. Give me your future. And he spoke to me about how I could give him the thing that was actually the most valuable thing to me, which was my future. It wasn't the money. I didn't have much. It wasn't a lot of other things, right? It was personal. It was specific. A couple years later, I was sitting with the Lord and I was asking him questions about my future. And this verse, the story of the rich young ruler came up again. And I, I said, Lord, same deal still applies. Same, same offer still out there. Like, I want you now to take my future. I want to do whatever you tell me to do. I'm going to do it. And he said, great. Now I want your money. And I had a little bit more money at that point, and I thought, oh, no. He remembered what I told him when I didn't have money. And this was the encounter that I had that really led me into missions. And I told the Lord, I said, I'll do anything you want. If you want a missionary, I'll be a missionary. And he said, yeah, I want a missionary. I said, okay. I said, how am I going to get the money for it? And he said, actually, what I want you to do is I want you to give away everything that you have, and I want you to give me all your money, and I want your bank account to be zero. And I said, that is a terrible idea for raising money. But if you say it, Lord, I'll do it. Like, I'll do it. And I said yes in this moment with the Lord. I came back to my final year of university. I was, I was between my, my last couple years of university at that time. I came back, and I had given away all but five shirts, five pairs of pants. I gave away my mini fridge. I gave away as much as I could to still remain slightly functional, but I, I, I emptied my bank account. I remember taking my, my precious, most, one of my most precious possessions at the time, my hammock, my Eno hammock. I don't know why I remember this. I, I, I remember taking it. I remember giving it to my friend. I said, here, man, I want to give this to you. And he was like so confused. He's like, why are you doing this? And I was like, don't worry. I just have to give this to you. And it was in that season of my life where I said, I don't know if it's possible to live Matthew 5, 6, 7, but I, I want to get as close as I can get. I'm pretty sure you said not to be anxious and to seek first the kingdom because it could actually be done. I'm pretty sure there's a blessing in being poor and I want to find out what it is. I'm pretty certain that there's a way to fast that there's a way to cut off things that need to be cut off. There's a way to do this thing. And I, I don't know how, but I got to get as close as I can get. And it was in that season that I began to see the heavens opened over my life. I'm talking, I'm talking provision like I have never experienced before. Somebody gave me a car. That was the first thing that happened, and I was like, I think this is going to work. Somebody gave me a car. I didn't have a car before for the first three years in university, and then I did after I'd given all my possessions away. I had guys showing up on my door. Hey, bro, I've got an extra microwave. Can I give it to you? I'm like, who told you I needed a microwave? They're like, I don't know. I just felt like you might need one. I, found, I would find money on the ground. I got, I had only heard about this one. I got the famous $1,000 envelope. You guys heard these stories? I'm like, those are made-up stories. Nobody's walking around giving $1,000. And I'm telling this story really intentionally for some of you. No one does that. I got it. 
I got the $1,000 envelope after I emptied my bank account. I'm thinking about this for some of your guys' lives and you're looking at this portion of scripture and you're like, there's just, Caleb, there's no way that I can live like that. There's no way that I could do that. And I'm telling you right now, get as close as you can to him and get as close as you can to his words. And he can't help but honor what he said. I want to invite us to stand. And tonight, some of you, some of you need to figure out if this, if this book is an analogy or a metaphor or if it's true. Some of you have questions that only experience can answer and, and, and theology can only get you so far. Like testimony can only get you so far. You're like, I've heard it said. Thousand dollar envelopes. I don't know if I believe that. I've heard in the scripture that you will provide, that, that you can live in a way that Jesus seemed to have lived and it seems like there's rewards, but like I just don't know. What if that's only for the next life? What if that, that doesn't affect this life? I'm telling you, if he looks at the birds... And if he looks at the flowers of the field, more beautiful than Solomon in all of his splendor, beloved, how much more does he care for his children? How can he not see you? Trying to love him with your life. And I'm banking everything on those eternal rewards. I'm banking everything on that river of life. I'm banking everything on treasure in heaven. So tonight, I want you to do business with God. If you wanna come forward, you can come forward. If you wanna remain where you are, you can remain where you are. I want you to do business with God and I need you to settle this tonight. Some of you should not leave here unless you settle this. Are these words real or is it just fake? Are these words true or is this just something I'm gonna be content with stepping back from the whole, my whole rest of the life? There's a window of opportunity open for some of you guys to look squarely at the pages of Scripture and say, I'm game. I'll try it. I'll look, I'll look foolish. I'll look silly. I will let him defend me. I will let him bring me through. And I will let him honor me, either in this life or the next. So, Father.